This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online, offline program that we developed to help you put into action all those things we've been writing about on artofmanliness.com and talking about on the podcast for these past 10 years. To do that, we've created over 50 badges based around 50 different skills. It's a mixture of hard and soft skills. So the hard skills are things like wilderness survival, emergency preparation, outdoor skills, fighting, hunting. And then on the softer side, we got badges on how to be a better father, oration, social skills, how to be a good host, cooking, and even music appreciation. Besides these badges, there's also we provide a platform for people to start and organize meetups so you can get together face-to-face because we're big believers of that here at the Art of Manliness. In fact, last Saturday, we had over 30 going on all around the world. Great way to make some new friends who all have the same goal of becoming better, well-rounded, useful men. So if you want to be one of the first to find out when enrollment opens up again, it's going to happen in March sometime, head over to strenuouslife.co. Again, strenuouslife.co. Put your email on the waiting list and we'll send you an email as soon as enrollment opens up. You're going to really love it. I hope to see you there at the Strenuous Life. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, you may have heard of Roger Bannister and his amazing feat of breaking the four-minute mile market back in 1954, but the story leading up to this milestone of human performance often gets overlooked and is filled with drama and lessons on grit, determination, and living a balanced life. My guest today wrote a book sharing the story behind Bannister's record and the two other men who were also vying to break it. His name is Neil Bascom, and his book is The Perfect Mile, Three Athletes, One Goal, and Less Than Four Minutes to Achieve It. We begin our discussion talking about the lead-up to the race and which the four-minute mile barrier was broken, and how many doctors in the early 20th century believed achieving this milestone was physiologically impossible. Neil then tells about the lives of the three men racing to be the first to run a sub-four-minute mile, and shares insights from them on the way the ethos of sports changed as it transformed from amateur pursuit to professional job, as well as the ability of people to push the limits of the human body by sheer mental will. Really great show. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash perfectmile. Neil Bascom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you spent a lot of your career writing books about war, specifically World War II. In your book, The Perfect Mile, uh, you take a look at the epic race to break the four-minute mile. I'm curious, what led you to write about this story? Was there some kind of World War II connection there, or was it just an interest of yours that you had? No, actually, Perfect Mile was the second book that I ever wrote, but actually before I started writing about war. And... My inspiration for it was was basically from high school. I was a high school cross-country runner, and my coach suggested to all his runners, really not really a suggestion, ordered us to read Bannister's memoir, The Four-Minute Mile, Roger Bannister's memoir. And I was absolutely blown away by it. It sort of gave me sort of added impetus to to run and to try to push myself. and you know, later and and as I started my writing career, I looked back to that story and saw that that no one had really done a, a history of of really the whole story about the breaking of the four minute mile. That it was more than just Roger Bannister's story, but it was a story about three men all in their early twenties uh, trying to achieve this landmark record. So, before we get to these three men, let's talk about the backstory of this of, of the four minute mile record. How long had people been trying to break 
a four minute mile before these three guys started doing it in Gusto in the 1950s? Well, it's, it, it dates back quite a bit, actually. I mean, as early as 1770, a runner said that he had run the four minute mile down London's Old Street. There was no official record of that, and it's uh, very likely a, a myth. But probably in the in the late 1800s, the mile and this sort of idea of of achieving a, a four-minute mile really came to fore. Uh, there was what was called at that time the mile of the century by two two brothers who were competing against each other in, in West London. And they got the record down to, to four minutes and 18 seconds. And then as the 20th century hit, you find that the tracks are improving, stopwatches are improving as well. And this idea of of running four laps, four quarter miles in four minutes, the sort of perfect balance of that really captivated people. And runners began chipping away towards the four minute mile. So Pavo uh, Nurmi, the, the Finnish runner, got it down to 410 in 1937. Sidney Wooderson got it down to 406. And then two Swedes in, in the sort of uh, World War II years knocked that down to to basically four minutes and one second. And then that's where it stood. And people thought or believed in many ways that that four minutes was an achievement that simply wasn't possible. Yeah. What did, I mean, you even had physiologists getting, you know, chiming in on this. What did they think would happen if a man did run a minute or un, run a mile under four minutes? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, I'd say, the, you know, physiologists, probably the, the good ones, would not go to the hyperbole that many went to, but my book opens up with the the statement that men thought that people would die if they ever attempted to reach four minutes, that the heart, that the lungs simply didn't have the capacity for it. Uh, and so there was this barrier, both sort of, I think, physiologically, but probably more psychologically, that it was an impossible achievement. So why why is the four-minute mile such a hard feat? I mean, what makes it different from, say, you know, an 800-meter sprint or a 5K? Well, I think the mile, and milers say this, but I think, you know, uh, track coaches and, and many people who are sort of intimately involved in, in the sort of running world consider the mile the kind of perfect combination perfect balance between speed and endurance you need both of those to become an expert miler so if you're a marathoner endurance is 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 what you need foremost if you're a sprinter doing a hundred yard dash speed is what you need most but if you're going to run a mile under four minutes you need to both be able to sustain incredible amounts of speed over a fair amount of distance if you ever try, in fact, to come close to what a four-minute mile is, I would suggest running on a treadmill and, and knocking it down the speed until you're as fast as you can go. And that's probably about a five-minute mile. And your legs are just going like crazy. So you can imagine what improving that speed by 20 25% is about. And, and how are people training for this before these three characters you follow in the book started really gunning for it. Were they scientific about it or were they just like, just run as hard as I can until I can't anymore? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the training at this time was not particularly advanced. I think the, the big training movement that, that really sort of ramped up speed subsequent to, to these events are two-a-day training sessions. 
at this point in time, you know, people weren't using coaches really that much. They were running once a day. They were doing limited intervals and they were basically in, in some respects, just running long distances and hoping that that would improve their times. There was a runner named Emil Zadepak who at this period of time was, was beginning to sort of train in a more modern way, but you know, Bannister and these others who were racing to break the four minute mile, when they started, they were really training under sort of rudimentary methods at best. Right. And what I also love about this book, besides telling the story of these three characters, is how you describe what sport was like during this time in the early part of the 20th century, particularly running. How was it different than from what it is today? Well, I think the fundamental difference is this idea of the amateur athlete, the ethos of that, the idea that, you know, at this time that again, coaches were, were scorned, uh, running and, and competition and athletics was about fun and about the effortlessness of it. Uh, there's this, there's this anecdote, which I love particularly, there was an Oxford sprinter, a guy named uh, Bevel Rudd. And just to give you an idea of, of what people considered an athlete should be or how they should approach their sport. Uh, he was a sprinter. He arrived at the at a quarter mile race with a cigar chomping in his mouth. He put it down on the side of the track. He ran his sprint. He won. He picked up the still smoking cigar, stuck it back in his mouth and sauntered away from the track. That is an extreme example of what, you know, the sort of amateur effortless athletic runner was about, but it gives you an idea of the world that these people were living in at, at the time. So it wasn't like today where like you have athletes who dedicate 24-7 to training for their, their sport. Like they, they the amateur athletes strive to have a well-balanced life and sport was just one of many things they did. Yeah, sport was one of many things. It was not a career. It was not something that they endeavored to make money off of. They thought that they would run in their early 20s, and then they would go off and, and pursue a career. Often they were studying at the same time, and there just was no expectation that this was more than just a sort of intense hobby. And this was particularly a British ethos, correct? Like a United Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say this: it, the, the, the British exemplified this the best. I think the Americans in sort of typical American fashion were exceeding and, and sort of professionalizing what running and athletics was. But even in the United States, and one of the principal characters in the story, Wes Santee, was bedeviled by this, I think, evolving world between amateur athletics and what sport was to become, which was professional athletics. And it's one of the reasons, again, I wrote this book. I, I just felt it was this particularly nice moment in sport where the sort of last of the great amateur athletes achieves a, a sort of landmark record. I think subsequent to that, that world sort of slipped away from us. And also it was interesting, this is going on, all the race for the, the four-minute mile or the sub-four-minute mile was going on at the same time when this other sort of amateur idea of the, the amateur adventurer. So you had people trying to scale Mount Everest and doing all these other epic things. It was kind of that, it was catching that same sort of vein and it was sort of the last of the, the amateur adventures as well. Yeah, it was, it was this idea. I mean, Edmund Hillary, um, who was 
in the uh, I hate to use this word, but I will uh, the milieu of uh, of Roger Bannister and these others these these men who consider themselves adventurers, explorers, pushing both sort of not only the personal records but but also great achievements. So let's talk about these characters specifically. We everyone probably knows Roger Bannister, so we'll save him for last. Let's talk about you mentioned Wes Santee. There were three individuals. Wes Santee was one of them. He was an American, but tell us more about his his background and how he approached breaking the the sub four minute mile. So Wes Santee was was the American, one of the three in the story, all trying to uh, achieve the the four minute mile at the same time. He was, you know, from a small town, uh, Kansas farm, an awful guy who beat Wes pretty terribly whenever he tried to sort of perform his sport growing up. His father wanted him to work the farm. He didn't want him to be interested in athletics or anything like that. Didn't want him to run. Uh, And running for West Santee was his way out of that world, away from the farm. He was recruited to the University of Kansas by the great track coach there, Bill Easton, and became very quickly um, the, the greatest miler in America by by great strides. And Wes was quite a bit of a character. He was, he was very brash. He loved the, loved the glamour, loved the press. He was considered the quote unquote dizzy Dean of the cinders. He would approach the track. He would say, I'm going to run this time, like Babe Ruth kind of pointing to the stands where he's going to hit the home run. And then he'd run that exact time. And he was competing both, uh, for the university and then also trying to to achieve the Olympics in, in 1952. And I think one of the f- sort of foundations of this story is that all three of these individuals competing for this, uh, Roger Bannister, Wes Santee, and then John Landy, all had approached the 52 Helsinki Olympics hoping and believing that they would would win or, or at least place in the medal, and none of them did. And so by the end of that Olympics, they were rearing to go to try to sort of prove themselves. And the mile was the way that they were going to do that. Breaking the four-minute mile was, was in some ways redemption for all three of these runners. And for Wes, uh, who was still competing for the University of Kansas and was running races almost on a, a weekly basis, not only running the mile, but even longer distances, he was just sort of constantly, constantly running, 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 and competing, competing. And he was, as though he was shooting for the four-minute mile, he also had the responsibilities of so many other things. And that's in, in sort of very stark contrast to the two other runners, uh, Bannister and Landy, who were much more focused on simply breaking the four minute mile. That was their ambition. That was the focus of all their efforts. And so in some ways, Santee was, was handicapped by the sort of constant running and constant racing as opposed to the two others. So you mentioned earlier that Santee was sort of bedeviled by this transition from sort of amateur athletics to profession, the professionalization of the sport. I mean, how did, how did that play out in his life and in his running career? Any examples of that? It, you know, it did not play out well for, for Wes Santee. I mean, Wes was, and I met and interviewed all, all three of these gentlemen, um, over the course of, of, of writing the book. And 
you know, even in his, in, in his seventies, Wes was still sort of heartbroken over what happened to him in this period of time. Basically, uh, amateur athletics in the United States, a lot of people were making money except for the athletes themselves. You sort of almost can, can, uh, sort of draw a line to what's happening in, in college athletics, college football and the like, where you have this world in many ways exploiting these athletes and Wes, who was, was not a shy individual pushed up against that and was offered, you know, travel money basically, uh, to go to different events across the country. And because he was so brash, because he was so in your face, I think the athletic community in the U S was intimidated or afraid or, in some ways, uh, wanted to sort of knock him down off that that stool, and they essentially did that over the course of the 1954, and ultimately ended up banning him from from racing right at the sort of crux or the most important moments of breaking the four minute mile, where he didn't end up getting his chance. And the the, the organization you're talking about here is the AAU, correct? Correct. Correct. So. You mentioned earlier, um, so I'm guessing Santee never broke the four-minute mile, correct? So Santee never broke the four-minute mile. He came within 30 seconds of it, but that was as close as he ever got. And I think a combination of overrunning, overcompeting, uh, coupled with uh, the AAU uh, controversy, which eventually uh, forced him out of the sport, uh, kept him from achieving it. And what did he do? after his running career was over he after his running career he ended up selling insurance across kansas and then you know made a career of that raised a family but again when i met him in kansas in 2002 i believe i mean he still talked very emotional about his father in some ways he was he was still a bit of an open wound about what happened to him about the 4 minute mile and the aau expulsion so let's let's move over to John Landy. He was an Australian runner. How how did being a runner from Australia disadvantage him and or maybe how did it that disadvantage perhaps give him an edge as well? Well, I think that the disadvantage for Landy at least in Australia was the sort of lack of focus on on running the the running culture there uh growing up running and, and competing in athletics was not necessarily something that a, a young Melbourne boy would aspire to be. Landy came from a sort of middle-class background, nice family. He loved to chase butterflies. He came to running late in his life or late in his you know teens, and but found that he had this sort of amazing, uh, at this period, ability to sort of push himself to, to compete out of almost sheer will. And he was eventually recruited to join a sort of band of merry runners, as I sort of look at it, led by this kind of guru, I, I guess is the best way of explaining him, or he was a bit of a freak, but he knew running very well, a man named Percy Saruti. Uh, and he was, he was a short guy, he was about five foot two, Saruti, and he uh, ran barefoot. He ran around town in Melbourne, uh, shirtless, wearing these very small um, shorts, 
and recruited Landy and a bunch of other runners to to train them to be the best. And he had these sort of outlandish methods. Not only was running barefoot sort of part of that, but running up and down sand dunes, running through through nature, living off a vegetarian root-based diet, considered running kind of a, it's the best way of saying it, sort of as an art, as an expression of art. And Landy thrived under that for, for a while because it, it, uh, it was fun. And it was something where he found himself on a team and, and was sort of pushing and getting better and better. But ultimately, Saruti did not believe that, that Will or running more and more was, was the way to achieve and to get better. And Landy, at a certain point, decided that he could train himself and he could push himself harder and longer than anybody else. And so you have Landy, I think of all three runners, probably the one who trained the most, who trained the hardest, was running you know, hours and hours at night uh, after school and really ground himself down and pushed himself. And probably, I'd, I'd say, was the best-conditioned uh, runner of, of the three of these challengers to the four minute mile. Yeah. When I was reading about Landy's coach, he reminded me of sort of like kind of the paleo movement that you, you see <laughs> exactly today, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, and imagine that in, 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 in 1954, right? So that was, that was not de rigueur. We're going to take a quick break before we work from our sponsors. All right. For all you guys that love discovering cool new products that you can't find everywhere, I need to tell you about BespokePost.com. BespokePost is a subscription club that offers monthly themed boxes curated from unique and upcoming brands from around the world. They've got a wide variety of box themes, including style, grooming, cooking, drinking, travel. They cover all the bases. Plus, there's no commitments. Once you're assigned a box on the first of each month, you have five days to keep it, switch it, or skip it. And if you want to figure out which box you should get, to do that, you go to BespokePost.com. You answer a few short questions that'll help you figure out what your interest is and line up the best box for you. Each subscription box goes for only 45 bucks and contains more than $70 worth of goods. I got the refresh box. It's a grooming box, basically. It comes with a really nice leather dop kit along with some great shaving creams, some soap, some shampoo. It's really awesome. If you want to try this out, I got a special offer for our podcast listeners. If you go to bespokepost.com and use promo code manliness, you're going to get 20% off your first subscription box. So again, 20% off your first box, go to bespokepost.com. That's B-S-P-O- kepost.com promo code manliness to get 20% off your first subscription box. Also by proper cloth. So finding a dress shirt that fits is hard. Something's always off. You, you've probably done this routine. You go to the department store, you know your neck size, you find a shirt with your neck size, neck fits you right, but then everything else doesn't fit you well. The shirt's either too billowy, the cuffs are too tight, or it's too short. It's just a big pain. Proper cloth solves this problem. You go to propercloth.com, you answer 10 questions, no measuring required, and they're going to get you a custom shirt size that fits you perfectly in just seconds. It's amazing. And besides getting a perfectly fitted shirt, you can also customize this bad boy. They have over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, and 500 fabric styles to choose from, from classic to business. So you can customize the shirt however you want and style it the way you want. The fabric is some of the top stuff in the world, and they only buy fabrics that meet their high quality expectations. And each of the shirts goes through extensive quality control testing, so you're getting the absolute best quality and craftsmanship. Best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit you perfectly, they will remake it for free. This is the future of shirts, people. These shirts are made completely custom to you, starting 
starting at just $80. So stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start looking your best with a custom fitted shirt. Go to propercloth.com slash manliness today and enter code manliness. You're going to save $20 off your first shirt. Again, propercloth.com slash manliness, promo code manliness to save $20 off your first shirt. Do it today. And now back to the show. And so you mentioned Landy after he broke, he he got more intense with his training. Did his style of running change after he broke that broke from this coach that allowed him to, you know, give him an edge in his in his running? No, I wouldn't say his his style of running changed dr- dramatically. I mean, his his stride changed a little bit. He, you know, the the barefoot running uh, helped augment that. But it was for for Landy. It was really about putting in the miles, about keeping a notebook and and writing. You know, okay, today I went eight miles in the morning. I went, I did this speed. Tomorrow I'm going to do nine miles, and then just ramping that up all on his own, without any without any great interval training or sort of scientific methods about it. Just sheer putting on the miles to to improve and you know it it did wonders he became the 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 greatest australian miler uh at the time and steadily chipped down at the four minute mile and got very close to being the first person to break it and you also you mentioned that he he, while he didn't have a coach, he did look at how some of the other runners were training. I guess he took a lot of inspiration from those Finnish guys, right, that were doing really well in the Olympics. He did, from particularly from Zadipak, who we met at Helsinki Olympics and took away some of those interval training methods. But but again, all sort of notes, no no kind of rigorous schedule that we have today where you you know you're going to do, you know, two minutes hard bursts and then 15 seconds off and, and, and at this heart rate and at this level of effort, it was just, he was experimenting by, by feel more than anything else. So let's move to Bannister. So he was from England. What was his philosophy towards running and athletics in, in, in general? Yeah. I mean, Bannister was, was the archetypal, um, amateur athlete. He was a conservative guy. He was quiet. He was cerebral. He was born in Harrow, England. Um, loved running from a sort of very early age. I think one of his sort of crystalline memories is, is running on a beach as a child and that sort of freedom of movement. He writes beautifully about that in his memoir about running. But I think above and beyond anything else, uh, a love of running, I think what you had in Bannister was just an absolute killer in terms of competitive will. Um, I mean, meeting him uh, years ago, you know, the intensity of his eyes, the intensity with, with which he spoke of these races, you know, almost 50 years later was absolutely remarkable. Um, and so Bannister is the, is the amateur athlete, you know, Although he wanted to be the best, um, he also wanted to um, pursue his his career. And so, at this time of the training, he was he was um, training to break the four minute mile. He was um, studying to become a doctor. He was interning at St. Mary's Hospital. Um, he attended Oxford. So he was, you know, achieving this sort of excellence um, in medicine to become a neurologist. Uh, while at the same time trying to break this um, this record, and so he had very little time to do that. He was training, um, you know, at lunchtime. 
uh, at best a half hour uh, walking to the track near the hospital and, and putting in his time and then going back and, and seeing patients. Uh, he was, again, the sort of the supreme example of the amateur athlete, at least at the beginning of, of, of this story. That subsequently sort of evolved as he got closer and closer to four minutes. Yeah, so you mentioned Landy. His training was sort of experimentation, trial and error. But Bannister, with his medical background, he, he kind of got scientific with how to best approach breaking the four minute mile. And he kind of, he researched it. Like he had this, yeah, I guess he developed this contraption to test, to test a uh, VO2 max, correct? Yeah. He was testing uh, VO2 max. Uh, he was testing uh, lactic, ac- lactic acid in his, his muscles. He had built this treadmill and in, in the lab uh, at school and, you know, he would put himself on that thing and hook himself up and, and run as fast as he could and then hop off and take, you know, blood samples and then do it again. Um, and really trying to see from a scientific level, what was possible, what was physiologically possible and how to sort of push himself, um, to a higher level. He experimented on his friends, uh, Chris Brasher and Chris Chataway, um, and other people. Uh, he was running a sort of scientific experiment in some ways on, on the four minute mile. And I think for a period of time, that overwhelmed him um, in the sense that he was approaching this from a purely sort of mental level. Um, and I think, again, as the story evolved, he had to sort of embrace that sort of love of running, which I think Santi probably exemplified more than anybody else. Um, and that sort of will that John Landy sort of exemplified probably more than anybody else. He, Bannister in many ways need to sort of combine those sort of will, love running, and the, and, and the sort of mental um, uh, breakdown of what was absolutely necessary to break four minutes. And what's also, also interesting about Bannister, so he started off like Landy. Well, no, he started off training by himself. But unlike Landy, who later, you know, he started off with the coach, but then broke off by himself. Bannister, as he got closer and closer to breaking the four-minute mile, he actually got a coach and started working with other people to help him do this thing. He realized he couldn't do it by himself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably, that was the, the significant moment for, for Bannister. So you have 1952, the Helsinki Olympics, the, the, the failure there, uh, Bannister particularly was slated to, to, to win a medal. Um, and so he comes back and all through 1953, he's, he's running on his own. And getting slightly better, but not to the level that it needs to. And so finally, he, his friends, uh, Chris Chataway and Chris Brasher, and a coach, uh, Franz Stompfel, um, who again was beginning to sort of pursue running in a much more sort of rigorous um, new methods, new interval training and the like. Um, and really getting Bannister to sort of push himself um, past the point where he thought he would break. I think that was what Stanfield did as a coach for Bannister. Um, I think Bannister wasn't willing to sort of push himself to that point, and, and, and Stanfield was the one who, who got him there. So let's talk about the race in which Bannister finally 
beat the four minute mile. When did that happen? And did he like, was he expected to do that? He thought he was going to do it that day or were there, was there sort of some hemming and hawing before then? Well, I think in, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, Bannister, again, unlike Santee, who was racing time and time again to break four minutes, Bannister took a much more measured approach to it and decided that if he was going to achieve this, he would have to pick a date, pick a time where he was at the absolute supreme level of his conditioning, and also to do that race with pacers, with people, again, his friends Chataway and Brasher, who were both runners to in some ways uh, push him along the track as as pacers to to bring him to, to the level where he he could push past four minutes um and to say that better he took banister took this as a, as a team approach he knew he couldn't do it alone on the track by himself he needed someone to chase after um, and to push himself. And so he organized this um, this race on May 6, 1954 at Ifley Road Track at Oxford, a track that he knew very well. And his two pacers would go out before him and he would follow them around and then ultimately leave them behind to break four minutes. And it's funny, you said that, you kind of mentioned this in the book, that uh, the fact that he used pacers put a metaphorical asterisk next to his achievement. No, I, I definitely think it, it did in some ways. I mean, at least in many people's eyes, the, uh, the fact that he did not compete in a race and, and do it, that he had people pushing and, and in some ways he was drafting off of them around the track did not make it legitimate. My point of view on that is that's bullocks. And, <laughs> you know, he ran four minutes, no one had ever done it. He did it. <laughs> on the track. He didn't have some sort of special shoes or an extreme gusty wind uh, at his back on a, on a street. He ran it around a track on a sort of dim, dark day and, and, and managed it and achieved something that was remarkable. But I don't think that was the end of the story. Um, the reason that my book is called The Perfect Mile is because I don't consider the breaking of the four-minute mile at Ifley Road on May 6th to be Bannister's ultimate achievement. I think it was beating four minutes at a race uh, against the best in the world, which he did subsequent to that. Right. So the best in the world was John Landy, who who broke the four-minute mile after Bannister. How long after Bannister broke the four-minute mile did Landy break it? Landy broke it on June 21st, 1954. So, you know, roughly six, six and a half weeks after Bannister did it. And it was it's interesting because Landy, who had come the closest prior to to Bannister had essentially given up in some ways. I mean, he, he had told the press that he felt like he had hit a brick wall, that there was no faster that he could go. And yet after Bannister broke it, I think, I think in many ways, the psychological barrier was broken and Landy in, in Finland at a race, not only broke four minutes, uh, but beat Bannister's time by almost a minute and a half. I mean, almost a second and a half, which is remarkable. All right. So Landy breaks it. Santee is sort of out because he then he has to join the Marines and that kind of ended his career. You talk about this, the perfect mile, this race, this showdown between Bannister and Landy. How big of a, of a cultural event was this at the time? Did it sort of captivate world audiences? 
So the four minute mile itself, the this race um, that Bannister sort of started off by announcing that that he was going to break four minutes, and this battle between he and Bannister, and I mean battle between Bannister, Landy, and Santi captivated the world and brought a tremendous amount of front page news attention to this, to not only to the mile but to athletics. And so once Bannister broke it again, worldwide headline news. And then suddenly in August of 1954, you have Bannister and Landy, the two men in the world who had broken four minutes, now facing off against each other in a race. And so that just drew the attention of, of sports writers and newspapers and, and radio broadcasters and, and the like. It was um, an international event that drew a tremendous amount of attention and in some ways, as, as again, as I write in the book, is, is, is that was sort of the beginning of this evolution from, from amateur to, to professional athletics. This idea, this level of attention, uh, this media presence of the Commonwealth Games um, for this epic race in August uh, in Vancouver. Uh, between Bannister and Landy. And going into the race, who was favored to win it? Was it Landy because he had won, you know, he broke the four-minute while while actually racing, or was Bannister favored? I think that largely depends on uh, what newspapers you were reading. If you were reading the London Press, um, <laughs> they they were sure Bannister was going to win. And if you were reading the the, the Melbourne Press, the, the, the alternate would be the case. But from my perspective, at least, Landy was the the faster runner. He was suffering a little bit from a cold um, in Vancouver, but he was, you know, he had been competing um, over the course of, of of this story, so he had more sort of um, experience in some ways on that level. He was clearly in better shape, and in many ways, I thought a, a faster runner. So if, if I could sort of draw back in time and look at this without knowing what was going to happen, I probably would have bet on Landy. Um, he was the kind of runner who always sort of went off um, like a jackrabbit from the start and kept and maintained the lead uh, throughout the race. That was the kind of runner he was, and he just ran away with race after race. And so compared to Bannister, who in some ways you know, was still – not training at the level anywhere near what Landy was doing um, and had been beaten by a, a second and a half in, in terms of time. And so that was, that's pretty dramatic difference. And what made the race more dramatic too, and people didn't, people at the time didn't know this, that Landy before the race stepped on some flashbulb from a photographer and sliced his foot open before the race. Yeah. I mean, he had, you know, had a cold and had this, uh, this injury on his foot, but you know, speaking to Landy about it, and maybe he was just being a gentleman. Uh, many years later, he said, "You know, that that had no significant impact um, at all on his uh, running that day." And I think that's probably the case. I think pure adrenaline would have uh, would have obviated that injury, although it was, you know, in some ways serious. I mean, his, his foot was sort of blood soaked at the end of the race. So, what allowed Bannister to win? Do you think he just dug deep and just tapped into that will? that competitive killer instinct to win in that final kick? I think it, it absolutely was about Bannister and his killer instinct. I mean, it's drew back to what I said earlier about him. 
he was a killer. I mean, he was a competitive monster. He needed to win. He had to win. And he was, he was very smart about it. He let Landy, you know, lead off. He let Landy sort of, in some ways, expire himself a little bit. And then out of sort of sheer will and killer instinct, he sort of drew himself closer and closer to Landy as they went um, into the, to the final stretch of the race. And, and I think so, sort of most famously, and there's even a, a statue of this in, in Vancouver, Ban- or Landy looked over his shoulder to see where Bannister was, knowing very well that he was coming up close on his heels. And that split second of, of turning and that uh, loss of momentum in his legs was the exact moment that Bannister put on his final kick. And it was more than enough to not only beat Landy, but also to to break the four-minute mile again. So what did Landy and Bannister do after this this perfect race? How did they spend the rest of their careers? So, so Bannister largely abandoned uh, running subsequent to to the Empire Games. He retired. He went on to become what he always wanted to be, a, a neurologist. A, a quite successful one and was, was practicing medicine, you know, for, for decades afterwards and was a fairly well-renowned neurologist. Uh, Landy actually ran in the subsequent Olympics, uh, did not do terribly well, but is probably sort of most famous incident after uh, this four minute mile episode was when he uh, at the Olympics sort of stopped to, to, rescue or to help another runner on the track and then went on to win the race uh, even after the delay of helping another runner get up and back to his feet. So Landy was very much a beloved figure in in Australia. Uh, He became a businessman and then when he retired he eventually ended up becoming the governor of Victoria. A sort of ceremonial post kind of the sort of head of state of, of that particular area of Australia. So yeah, it sounds like a lot of these, they, they kind of moved on with their life, it sounds like. They, yeah, I mean, I think the only one who didn't move on is, with his life was, was Wes Santee. When I met him, he was at that time serving as kind of a, I guess the best way to put it, as a, a condolence uh, mourner at, at a funeral parlor, which is a sort of sad place to sort of spend your days. But again, he you know constantly spoke of of what happened in the four minute mile with a great deal of regret. So what's the record for the mile now? And what's the threshold that everyone's gunning for now? So the record for the, for the mile now is, is three minutes, 43 seconds and, and some change, I think owned by a Moroccan, uh, El Garouche. And he's held that record since 1999. So, so no one's sort of chipped away at it since then. And I think in some ways, the mile isn't quite what it used to be. I think the metric system is in some ways sort of taken dominance in the 1500 meter race, which is the Olympic race, uh, is really what middle distance runners are, are running now and, and aiming to achieve. And so the mile is sort of lacked, uh, lost some of the glamour that it, that it had in those days. Uh, in 1954. Are there people still gunning for it though? Like are there people like I'm a miler. That's what they say they are. Yes. I mean, I think in, in particularly in America, probably there are, there are more, there's more of this idea of, of being a miler and, and sort of breaking four minutes, which in some ways is now the, the sort of standard to become a competitive miler is to actually break four minutes, but to actually chip it down to 340 or 330, no one's come close. 
I think you know most of the attention right now is is on running at least and at least breaking barriers is that two hour marathon. So after writing about these three men, did you take away any lessons from them on living a, a good life? And do you think they should serve as models for athletes today? I think it's probably impossible for this idea of of you know the most elite athletes in the world to be pure pure amateurs. I think that day is lost. But I think at least from from my perspective, from a from someone who enjoys running and enjoys sport, I think the idea of of doing it for the pure sake of enjoyment is something that sort of I took away from this book. And I still go on runs uh, these days where you know they're they're shorter every year, but where I have this moment where I'm, you know, my most recent one was down in Mexico um, on this sort of abandoned beach where I ran for, for miles and then into the hills. And I remember stopping and, and being, you know, having this sort of exalted moment where, you know, running was sort of beauty and it was just pure and it was just for the sake of it, not for exercise, not for anything else. And that's something that I think that Santi and Landy and Bannister all had in their own way. So that's one thing that I sort of drew from their sort of experiences over the course of the story. And I think the other one was kind of what it takes to, to achieve the impossible. This idea, and this is a simplification, but this idea that, that Santi sort of ran from his heart throughout his life. Landy ran from out of pure will and, and Bannister sort of approached it in a cerebral from his, from his head. And I think that the way that Bannister was able to break four minutes first and the way that he was able to, to win at the Empire Games was this ability finally to sort of combine that sort of heart, will, and mind. And that's something that I, I see over and over in, in other aspects or other histories that I write about people doing pretty remarkable things. Well, Neil, this has been a great conversation and I really recommend people go get the book because the way you write and tell the story, like you're like on bated breath, you know, and see how things turn out, even though you know how, <laughs> very sweet of you to even say. though you know, the, you know how it's going to turn out, you're still, you, you get pumped up. Where can people go to learn more about the, your work and your book? Sure. So they can, uh, my books are available in, in, you know, pretty much everywhere they sell books. So you can also love for you to come to, to the website. That's www.neilbascom.com, N-E-A-L-B-A-S-C-O-M-B.com. Awesome. Well, Neil Bascom, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. That's been awesome. Thank you. My guest today is Neil Bascom. He's the author of the book, The Perfect Mile. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also head over to his site, neilbascom.com to learn more about his work. He's written a lot of great stuff on World War II. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash perfect mile, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider recommending the show to a friend or family member. Word of mouth is how the show grows. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.